our Heavenly Father, we bow our heads and lift our hearts to you. We come before you with clenched fists and a posture of confession. We come before you with broken hearts, filled with feelings that are not from you, and minds that stray to thoughts that are not as you would want them to be. We acknowledge before you, O Lord, that we cling to our selfish desires. We look inward instead of outward. We move in our own circles without thinking of those that are beyond, those that are our neighbors who are hurting without you, those that we walk by as they huddle in cardboard on the cold streets of our city, those that struggle to put a meal on their table while we throw away our leftovers. We acknowledge before you, O Lord, that we hold tightly to those things we need to let go. We hold grudges with our friends and neighbors. We grow bitter by not forgiving those who have hurt us. We live in fear by not trusting others or trusting you. We are proud people, O Lord, too overconfident in ourselves to give ourselves fully over to you. And globally, the hands of power seize others and seek to control those that are not their own. We think of the wars throughout our world, the war in Syria. We think of the grappling of power between the American and Canadian governments and the First Nations over land use and for their ongoing future relationships. We think particularly of the situation in the Dakotas and locally here along the southern part of the Grand River. We confess these sins to you, O Lord, and acknowledge our wayward ways. Help us, Lord, in your gracious and merciful ways to free ourselves from this bondage. We come before you, O Lord, with open hands facing down, petitioning you. We give ourselves over to you, for you are the Almighty and in control of the world. We ask for you to release us and our world from sin. We ask for you to, pro to provide us with the strength that we need to refocus our time and energy from ourselves to serving that which stands outside of our lives. We ask you to break the cycles of our own lives which hold us back from serving others. We ask for you to rescue us from the sin and sickness that inflicts us in this world. We think of those within our church who are suffering from the ills. We think of those suffering from mental health. Please free them from the darkness that can seem so overwhelming. Give them the strength to see through this darkness to your life-giving light. We pray for those that are ailing. We pray for Tom and Evelyn Hageman, and particularly Evelyn, as she is recovering from the recent surgery on her broken hip. Give her the strength that she needs in her healing. We pray for Elko and Ann Wiersma, as Anne is recovering from a number of broken bones that she sustained recently. Give Anne the patience and strength in her time of healing. We come before you with a faith and a trust in you that always seeks to look elsewhere. We ask you to align our faith to you so that we can trust in you in order that we live as you have shown us to through your Son, Jesus Christ. We come before you, O Lord, with our open hands facing up in a posture of receiving. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. 
we are your vessels open to receive you fully. We recognize your blessings throughout our lives. The blessing of health, friends to laugh with, a community within this congregation who surrounds each other during the times of need and who celebrate together the numerous gifts we have from you, whether that be the birth of a new baby or as we had this morning, the baptism of a man of Inmarin, or the welcoming of new members, as we had this morning with John and Allison, or the bringing of a meal to a family in need, or the sharing of our space as we break bread with the Syrian refugees. All of these are gifts from you that we are ever thankful for. We thank you for the special events we can host during this season of your son's birth. We thank you for the Friendship Christmas celebration this evening and for the joy that this ministry brings to both those that lead and those that are served by the Friendship Group. We thank you for the chance that we have to serve our neighbors through the North End Christmas Hamper Initiative. We thank you that we are able to give and that we can bless others as, as you have blessed us. We thank you for your steadfast dedication to the churches in our area and we celebrate with them particularly Ancaster CRC, as you have blessed it with the ordination of Adam Veenstra this morning. We pray that your wisdom be upon Pastor Veenstra as he brings your word to that congregation and as he leads them to do your will and to serve you in all aspects of their lives. We are thankful within our own congregation to come together this Wednesday as we continue to live into the vision that you have for us here in downtown Hamilton. We are thankful for the new office space that you have provided. And we pray for a blessing upon this meeting as we seek your direction for this church. O oh, Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that we fall short. We ask that you give us the strength to give ourselves over to you. And we are thankful for the gift of your Son and his birth this Advent season. We pray all of these things in your holy and everlasting name. Amen. I invite Justin Cook to come up. Uh, Justin's going to share a testimony using language uh, around restorative justice. Uh, I think the handheld actually went this way. Do you? Front pew. <laughs> um, Restorative justice ties into a, a Hebrew word that we talked about a few weeks ago um, called mishpat. It's one of the, the key Old Testament words that display God's character and the way God cares for his people and, and reconciles and restores them together. The reason we're asking Justin to share a little bit of his story and his engagement with the idea of restorative justice is because it plays out in the text from Ruth chapter 2 that Jim Tigelar will read for us in just a few minutes. Thanks, Chris. So there's kind of three questions that Chris has offered me and others have responded to in testimony as well, and I'll just kind of quickly uh, run through them uh, to explain why I'm excited to talk to you about restorative justice. So the first was, what do I do? And I support 70 Christian schools across Ontario, one in Charlottetown, PEI as well. Uh, as the Director of Learning at the OACS, the Ontario Alliance of Christian Schools, and it's really exciting for me to be able to support those schools. 
second question was why do I do this? And I think it's, it's extremely exciting for me to partner with schools in a vision um, that doesn't just default to this contractual transactional relationship with students where we give them grades and in return they get skills that allow them to self-actualize and make a lot of money in some future career. That, that tends to be a bit of a default position in education. We'll give you what you want and then you can get a job that really gets you a lot of money down the road. Instead, and I'm using this economic framework because I really think that's what the Book of Ruth is exploring and I think uh, what Chris is going to preach on today in terms of restorative justice. And instead, in our schools, we want to see Christ as this model where we are loved, and in the love Christ offers to us, we also then work and, and play for the flourishing of not just ourselves, but of others around us, and indeed, all the universe. Um, and Darren kind of spelled that out really powerfully and environmentally in his testimony a couple weeks ago. So we use this relationship window that's on the screen behind me to talk about how we see each other as people, as image bearers. And I just want to briefly explain this relationship window from, so, uh, from restorative justice. On the bottom axis, you see there a movement from low to high support. So on the far right is high support in the way that we might be in relationship. And on the x-axis, Sorry, the y-axis, right, is vertical. On the what? thank you, Ian. <laughs> On the y-axis, we have a movement from low to high control or expectations. And I think this powerfully reflects options that exist in authority structures in schools. When I'm in relationship with students, I might find myself up on the top left in a punitive position where I see kids as objects to be managed and I have high expectations and high control for them but very low support and I might see this as a bit of a punitive structure. I'm authoritarian. On the bottom right, maybe a bit of the opposite, I might see students as objects of need where I want to give them all kinds of support and I do things for them. I'm constantly trying to do things for them and I really have very low expectations for how they behave or how they act or what they're capable of doing. And obviously on the bottom left, if you have neither support nor control or expectations, it would just be neglectful. So instead, we want this restorative quadrant, this with, this idea that we're not objects, we're subjects, we're image bearers, we're people to be honored, whether we're five years old or 95 years old, all of us are Im image bearers that, that uh, deserve dignity and honor. But we have expectations for each other in what that means, and we have support for each other in what that means, and so we do things together in a spirit of with. I want to highlight that really quickly by one story from a grade 5-6 class. In a restorative posture with kids, we want to we pursue and we believe that together in our classes we can do beautiful work together, real work that meets a real need for a real audience. 
A typical text in grade five or six is Underground to Canada by Barbara Smucker. Are you familiar with that book or did you study it when you were a child? It's the story of the Underground Railroad um, back during the slave trade. And our grade five, six kids often study this text. One class in Halton Hills uh, with a teacher named Angie Bonvani, they asked this driving question. They said, how can we as historical fiction writers raise awareness that slavery still exists today? And together the class partnered with an organization called International Justice Mission Canada, and they were exploring modern day slavery while they were reading this text, Underground to Canada, about historical slavery. And they started to think, how can we use our writing to raise awareness that others are still in slavery and that we can work to restore their dignity and honor around uh, being human image bearers? So they wrote these historical fiction narratives, put them in a book, published them in a book, and then sold that book and read excerpts from their book um, to raise awareness that slavery still exists today. When I asked Amelia about her project, I asked her, are you excited to read excerpts of your story? She says, yeah, I'm really excited. I'm nervous too, though. I said, why are you nervous? She's like, well, have you ever read in front of people? It's nerve-wracking to read excerpts of your story. I said, why are you excited? She said, well, I'm changing history. I'm working to free slaves today. And I was just stunned by the clarity of the purpose economically for why she was learning about writing and language and how she was working to free slaves. I want to give one more brief aspect of this window because it speaks about my testimony in terms of the way I see God himself. For me, I think it's very easy to fall into different ways of viewing God as our Father through this window. I think there are times where I feel like God is a punitive Father, doing things to me as his Son. He has high control of me and high expectations, and sometimes I don't feel support. There are other times where I expect God to be this support where I don't even have any expectations of myself and I think he should just be doing things for me and my prayer life falls into that trap of just assuming God should take care of all my problems for me. But when I think about God with me, I recognize that I have responsibility for things that I have done, that I have to confess those things that I've done wrong, that I can't expect him to save me from all kinds of trouble in my life, but that I can pray that God will be with me, walking with me even perhaps through the shadow of the valley of death, that I can fear no evil because he walks with me through my troubles. He is support and he has expectations for me on that road. My middle name is Manuel. sounds a bit strange, but I was born December 19th, excited to celebrate my birthday. Uh, my parents named me Manuel because it was in the time of Christ, God with us. And so I think the Ruth tie to Advent is such a powerful aspect of withness that we experience. And that's partly why I do what I do in education as well. So thanks. Before we open the word this morning, let us uh, ask for a blessing. Heavenly Father, as we prepare, Lord, to partake of your written word and spoken word, we ask 
Lord, that you will open our hearts, our eyes, our ears, and our minds to receive and then to go from this place and use. We pray this in the strong name of our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Turn with me, if you choose, uh, to, the, uh, to page 413 of your pew Bible. Uh, we will be reading Ruth chapter 2, page 413. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, Go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters, The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they called back. Boaz asked the foreman of his harvesters, Whose young woman is that? The foreman replied, She is the Moabitess who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please, let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She went into the field and has worked steadily from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting, and follow along after the girls. I have told the men not to touch you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She exclaimed, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have given me comfort and have spoken kindly to your servant. Though I do not have standing... Do I do not have the standing of one of your servant girls? At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here, have some bread, and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Even if she gathers among the sheaves, don't embarrass her. Rather, they Pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up. And don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered and it mounted to about an ephah. 
She carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. <clears throat> she added, this, that man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabitess said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they have finished harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with his girls, because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the servant girls of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Justin and Jim. I... I wrestle with how to to preach this this whole series on Ruth because in some sense each chapter follows on the other and and, and there's a desire that that you almost want to do the whole thing in one day but I know some people's roasts would burn if we tried that so we're not we're breaking it out going over four weeks but I do want to as we step into this text this chapter two just briefly highlight uh, uh, two things out out of chapter one in chapter 1, we encounter Naomi who has, has left the land. She's gone to Moab, so she's left the land with her husband and two sons. And over the course of 10 years, her husband dies, both her sons die, and she's left empty. She gets to a point in that chapter, and, and this we need to keep in mind as we read chapter 2 and engage it. She comes to a point where she says, the Lord's hand is against me. The Lord's hand is against me. And it's in that context of saying the Lord's hand is against me that she also renames herself. She renames herself from Naomi, which means the pleasant one, to Mara, which means bitter. So Naomi, who, who left full, left with this full life and full family and a sense of meaning and purpose to go to a foreign land, comes back to the people of God and to the land in a place where she believes God's hand is against her. And she is bitter, full of bitterness. To understand a little bit more of the text, we need to understand there are, there are really two laws that kind of sit in the background of all that's unfolding here. The two laws have to do with this. One is the laws about gleaning, and it's multiple times in, in, the, in Leviticus where it comes up that, that people who are harvesting their land, the farmers as they work their land, are supposed to leave the corners of the fields and anything that they happen to drop to leave it lie on the ground so that widows, orphans, and foreigners can pick it up and can make food for themselves and can eat. There's a sense in here where it's saying, don't just give them handouts. Provide them with the opportunity to work 
so that they can participate in the life I've called them to. There's a providing through work that happens. The second, along with the gleaning, is the law about kinsman redeemer. And the kinsman redeemer meant that, that those who were closely related to someone going through a hard time had the first responsibility to come alongside them and provide for them during their time of need. If they didn't have the means, it went to the next closest relative and the next closest relative so that the extended family was the safety net for someone who was struggling. So widows, orphans, foreigners had a safety net through the gleaning. Family members, those who, who had a family still around them, had the safety net of their extended family. Those two laws sit in the background of what's happening here. But I want us to start out today the seeking favor. I don't know if you heard it or, or caught it in your, your ear, but there's a repetition of that word favor three different times in this text, all spoken by Ruth. She starts off saying, I'm seek who's ever field, I might find favor. She goes out to work in the glean and she wants to find favor somewhere. There's a little phrase in the NIV that says, it turns out that she ended up in the field of a close relative, right, of Boaz. It turns out. The Hebrew actually says, it chanced that she chanced upon the field. They kind of emphasize this double luck. She got lucky. Now be sure, Scripture doesn't really believe in luck. Any catechism kids here? Instead of luck, what do we say? Pro what's that word? Starts with a P? Providence. Yeah, that came from the Weebingas house a few weeks ago. You talked about providence, good providence, not good luck. It's that idea that God provides and God cares. But from Ruth's perspective, coming from a foreign land and not knowing this God of Israel, her perspective is, I just happen to be in that field. Isn't it lucky? Isn't that amazing? Isn't it coincidental? She went and she was seeking favor. When she finds favor, she's almost shocked. Did you catch that interchange she had with Boaz? Why, why have I found favor in your eyes? How have I actually found favor? She went out in the morning. Mother-in-law, I'm going to go look for favor. <laughs> And she found it, and she was shocked. I've actually found favor. And as she goes along, it, it gets one step further. Along with that favor, she says, may I continue to find favor. In other words, there's something good here. There's something good in this favor. I'm finding something that I hadn't expected, and I realize it's good, and I long for more of it. When we start thinking through Ruth and her story and her posture here she's recognizing on a base level that her search for food for basic survival depends on the generosity of a landowner but as the story goes on you realize that she's not just looking for food and she's not just finding food in this favor of Boaz she's actually finding something more it should prompt in us a question like this what are we really searching for? As Ruth unfolds in this story, she no longer becomes concerned just about the food, 
but it's about relationship. There's a level of joy that starts coming up in her and a sense of peace. We'll come back to that a little bit later. Mother Teresa, many of us, I'm sure, have heard of her, lived in Calcutta and and one of the the worst uh, places affected by poverty in the world. And as she was there, she often was asked to reflect on what are people's real needs. At one point, she commented on this, and, and she didn't talk just about what was happening in Calcutta. She actually talked about what's going on in the world as a whole. We can cure physical diseases with medicine, but the only cure for loneliness, despair, and hopelessness is love. There are many in the world who are dying for a piece of bread, but there are many more dying for a little love. The poverty in the West is a different kind of poverty. It is not only a poverty of loneliness, but also of spirituality. There's a hunger for love, as there is a hunger for God. If we're to hear what's happening in this story clearly, we need to hear that Ruth's hunger is not just for food and Naomi's hunger is not just for food. They're longing for God to really be God in their lives. They're longing for this God, in Ruth's sense, a God she is just coming to know, and in Naomi's sense, a God who has had his hand against her. Both of them are longing for God to show up and be with them in the midst of their suffering, for God to reveal himself as one who loves them deeply and who sees them and knows them and wants them. Many of us, isn't that our desire? Maybe we're coming from a time away from God, a time where we have been far, far away. Maybe we've never walked with God. And we felt in us this stirring that something's missing, something's not right. I need more than what I have in this life. All the wealth isn't doing it, and the poverty certainly doesn't help. No matter what we've chased after, we found ourselves time and time again empty and longing for more, longing for something that seems to be missing. Maybe, maybe we're more like Naomi in this story. Maybe we have run from God hard. Maybe we felt God, God's hand against us. Maybe we have suffered grief upon grief upon grief upon grief to the point we go, God, what are you doing to me? And we find ourselves with angerness and bitterness inside. We have those clenched this that John talked about as he led us in prayer. And we desperately want to open up our fists and open up our hands, but we don't know how, and we want this God to show up. The hunger talked about in this text is a hunger not just about finding favor and finding food. It's a hunger for God, for God to be present and real and good in our lives. The field of blessings. 
I don't know if you noticed as well, not only is favor repeated in this text, but that word blessing is repeated several times over. I think four or five times in this text it comes up. It's spoken first by Boaz, which signals a change. Something is different. The land that Boaz is on, that land was in a famine ten years ago. It was in a place where, where the time of the judges, where, where God was holding his people accountable for their sins, where they had walked away from God. And now you hear the first words spoken in this land by someone living there. It's this gift. Lord, be with you. The blessing of the Lord be with you. It is that with you, God with you, it has for us in this season a ring of Emmanuel, Advent, God with us. And the response to Boaz saying that is beautiful. The Lord bless you, coming from his workers. And as the story unfolds, you see that there's actually this genuine place where, where the employer, the landowner, and the workers like each other. They get along well. They, they know each other's character. The, work, the head worker of the field says to Boaz, Ruth showed up. I found out who she was, and I, I sent her out into the field. Basically, she's been working there all day. We read between the lines, the worker saying, I know your character, Boaz. I know what you would expect. If she had come and talked to you, you would have said, by all means, go into the field. So I acted on your behalf, in line with your character. There's a whole bunch of blessings that come up in this text. It is the contrast to chapter 1, the Lord bless you exchange, and it adds to that. Boaz treats his workers with dignity, so much so that he obviously knows them. Because he says, hey, wait a minute, someone new's out in the field. Who's she? I, I, I didn't notice her before. There's a recognition that he knows the people with him. There's that blessing of knowing and being known that's being portrayed in this text, that people have a sense of community together. Even though they're in different social structures and status, they are community together in Boaz's field. But more than that, it's really about God's generosity. Boaz demonstrates that this field of his is a place of blessing. He blesses Ruth with his words, and then he, he blesses her with the actions of saying, come on over. Come, eat this food. I'm not just going to save it for my workers. We're having lunch together. You should come eat with us. Come enjoy. And on top of that, he, he goes beyond what the letter of the law required, and he actually says to his employees, some of you drop a few more sheaves. Allow this to be a day where she experiences God's lavish love. A lot of the commentators start talking about this space as being one that is, is living out the fullness of God's law and God's community. This is how the people of Israel were supposed to live with so much blessing overflowing that there's room for everyone, including the foreigners and the widows, to find a place where they can thrive and flourish. In many senses, that's what we just promised here this morning. We put this water on Amanda, and we said to Amanda and to John and Allison, we're going to be your community. 
We're going to be your field of blessing so that Amanda will grow up in such a way that she's going to see Jesus is really true and really good and she's going to experience the love of God the Father in this place among these people. We made a promise together that we're going to start to be this field of blessing where God's generosity spills over. So much so that that we can trust God's character and we can act on God's character knowing that God is good and faithful and generous. We can act in a way like Boaz did with his employees. Live in my generosity because my generosity is really God's generosity. Boaz uses a phrase here when he's talking with Ruth says, may the Lord reward you greatly. The Lord, under whose wings, and I'll just read the verse, may you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz names what's been behind the scenes until this point. And he names that hunger that Ruth has and says, Ruth, you're here not just for food. Ruth, you're here not just because of your love for Naomi. You are here because you're seeking God. And my prayer is that you would find and experience God in this community. That you would find and experience God's love in this field. And he names that hunger that Ruth has. Oh, there it goes. What Boaz is doing in this place and in the context of naming that hunger is he's actually embodying what we call God's hesed. It's God's love. And he's doing something for us that the Old Testament often does. It, It gives us a little glimpse of what's to come in the rest of the story. It gives us these little spaces in these little stories where we start to go, oh, that's what God's like but in such a way that it, antici- it helps us anticipate what God's yet going to do. And so when we see Boaz acting with this chesed, this love that says, I'm going to love you even though I just met you. I'm going to wrap my arms around you even though you're a foreigner and you really don't belong to this people. You do now. You have a place here. And I'm going to show you God's love by the way I treat you. And all of that is is giving for us a glimpse of what God himself is going to do. God's going to send in his chesed love someone who would embody it so fully, Jesus Christ. Someone who we anticipate his birth and and imagine and remember that coming of, of God in the flesh. The fullness of God, as Paul ends up saying to the Ephesians. The fullness of God in Jesus Christ. And one who would extend that chesed love of God, not just to say, come and enjoy my generous field of blessing, but who would say, I'm actually going to go and find you while you're in that land wandering away. I'm going to go and find you and enter into the pain and suffering that you've had and take it on as my own. Jesus Christ, who would, who would then, in that commitment to suffering on our behalf and with us, would go to the cross would take on the fullness of all of our sin and the sin of the whole world and die in our place. 
He would bring about a reconciliation with God that we couldn't access on our own. That we had no hope of finding, no chance for chance sake of finding. God went and found us and is bringing us into his land of blessing, his field of blessing, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That baptism water this morning was not just a nice thing to say, God's going to bless you, Amanda. It was saying to Amanda and to all of us, Jesus Christ died. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And in that action of God, in that chesed love of God, we have hope and a future and a guarantee of life with God that we have been reconciled with him. We are being restored. The text bears this out a little bit more. It moves us to a place of restoration here. The last part of the chapter really focuses on, on, on acknowledging the dignity that, that Boaz is extending to Ruth that she has a place in this field. Come, work among my workers. Work among my, the women who are part of my community. You're part of it now. He's restored her dignity and, and allowed her a place that she can be among the people. But also, he's given her a glimpse of this relationship with God. She has a place not just in Boaz's community, but among God's people. And Boaz extends through his generous economics. He extends to her the, to say, you belong here and not only you, but this is about what God's doing in Naomi. And you hear within Naomi as, as Ruth brings back that harvest from just the first day, that, that overflowing harvest, and she says, wow, bless the person. Bless this person. You hear her hope returning. And she utters something that you couldn't have imagined at the start of this chapter. Remember? The Lord's hand is against me. I am bitter. Call me bitter. And then suddenly, at the end of this chapter, she's in a place where she's speaking the blessings of the Lord. Her hope has been renewed. She is being restored in relationship with God's people through Boaz and with God himself. And you hear hope returning. It's really what this Advent is about. It's awakening in us that hope that God is really with us. That God is really faithful to his promises to watch over us and to care for us and to restore us to himself and to each other. And the longing that gets awakened in us in this Advent season is the same longing that was awakened in Ruth and in Naomi, that God would reconcile us to himself and that in reconciling us to himself, that God would reconcile all people to himself and all things in heaven and on earth. This is the assurance that we have through Jesus' death and resurrection, that even as we celebrate the birth of Christ, we remember that he came to die on our behalf as part of his work of releasing not only us, but the whole world from the sin that had entangled us to the point that he makes all things new. This Advent season, I invite us to enter into that longing that Ruth and Naomi have 
that searching and seeking for the favor, not just of earthly blessings, but of God himself, a God who is with us in Jesus Christ, in his birth, his death, his resurrection, and his promised return. Let's pray. We stand in awe, Lord, of the way you weave stories together, the way you weave lives together, the way that you make room for brokenness to mingle with wholeness, for people to be restored, not because they have the answers, but because you are gracious and generous. Thank you for the generosity you poured through Boaz to Ruth and to Naomi. Thank you for the generosity that that shows us belongs to you. Thank you that it helps us to glimpse a little bit more of what you were doing when you sent Jesus Christ into our midst. That you were satisfying not just our our physical hunger, but our deepest hungers. Our hunger to be reunited and reconciled with you. May you rekindle our hope and our longing for your love in this season. May you help us to walk away from those things that won't satisfy and to turn to you, to return to you. We might be filled by your covenant love. In Christ Jesus we pray. Amen. Invite us to stand and sing together number 430, You are mine.